This is the season of Lent. This is the first Sunday of Lent. It began with our Ash Wednesday service last week, and it'll last for about the next 40 days as we journey with Jesus to the cross, ultimately celebrating resurrection together on Easter Sunday. Amen? Celebrating resurrection together on Easter Sunday. Amen. Amen. Come on, church. It's good news. And that is really good news. That is the story that we, we gather every Sunday to remember that story. Every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday in our tradition. But during this season, the journey from here to the cross is not really a celebration. It's not going to look much like the Mardi Gras parades you saw last week. <laughs> I mean, for one thing, from here on out, there's a lot less beads, right? But the most important thing is that for the next 40 days, it's a lot less celebration and a lot more sober reflection. So to take us from here to the cross, we're going to go back to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to finish a study that we started all the way back in September. Um, I don't have time today to do a recap, so if you weren't here with us for the first part of this study, uh, you can always go back to our website or to our podcast to get caught up. But I want to tell you what I love about the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is my go-to. It's the one that I actually do love reading the most personally. Um, for a couple reasons. One, I think it's the only gospel that makes the reader a character in the story. And we'll talk about that as we go on throughout the weeks. But what I really love about it is it's so simple. Like the truth is the entire gospel is constructed around two simple questions. From chapter one until the middle of chapter eight, Mark is inviting you to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? When we get to the middle of chapter eight, his disciple Peter gives the answer for all of us. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus goes on to explain exactly what that means. The problem is his explanation is not what anybody wanted to hear. So then Mark's gospel invites us to wrestle with the next question. Now that you know Jesus is Messiah, and now that you've heard what it means for him to be the Messiah, that he must suffer and die, now that you know what will you do? You're going to see these four letters a lot over the next six weeks. WWYD. What will you do? In response to the season, what will you do? And who knows, on Easter Sunday, we might even have some bracelets for you to take home. Let's say this is one. But this is the question that we're going to ask on Easter Sunday as we stand with some frightened women at the entrance of an empty tomb. And it's the question we're going to ask each week as we consider what it means to follow a Savior who's determined to find himself hanging on a Roman cross. So our scripture this week, it focuses on that journey, on Jesus' journey to the cross, but it does so by highlighting his disciples' reaction, like the way his disciples respond when he explains to them for the third time that he's going to Jerusalem to die. Like he tells them the only way to glory is through suffering. And his disciples respond by saying something really stupid, which we'll read about in a minute. They just didn't get it. So I wonder, do we? Like, do we get it? Do we understand what the cross is all about? And are we ready to take this journey with them? So I want you to listen to this. This comes from Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read verse 32. Mark writes this. He says, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. 
And they were amazed, and all those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll come back to Mark 10 in just a minute. But what we can tell so far is that it's clear there's a crowd following Jesus, right? More than just the 12. And Mark tells us that all who were following Jesus on that day were simultaneously amazed and afraid. He said they were amazed and fearful. So I want to try something. Like, I want to imagine us in that crowd. Like, Jesus just takes off, right? He's out ahead of everybody. He's resolutely set off for Jerusalem. And you're walking in his footsteps. You're walking through the dust that's been kicked up by his sandals. And I wonder, what are you thinking? Like in that moment, what are you thinking? Like this is the same Jesus who just healed a man who couldn't speak or hear. He had just healed a man who was blind, a boy possessed by a demon. He fed this massive crowd of hungry Gentiles with seven loaves of bread and just a couple small fish, and there were leftovers. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem. What are you thinking? What's going through your mind? Like, maybe you're amazed. Like, maybe you have hope. Because, okay, a man with this kind of power, when we get to Jerusalem, he might actually get something done. Like, he might be able to set things right once and for all. I mean, if the wind and the waves couldn't stop him, who can, right? But as he performed all these miracles, like, he had some things to say. He explained that he would suffer and die and rise again. He said it three times. He said that his followers would also suffer, that they would have to carry their own cross. He directly challenged the religious establishment that lorded its authority over the people that it was meant to serve. He said, if a part of your body is causing you to sin, it's better for you to cut it off and throw it in the fire than to let that part of your body keep you in sin. He goes on to equate divorce with adultery, like challenging not only the culture around us, especially now our culture of no-fault divorce, but he's even reframing the purpose of Old Testament law about divorce. He teaches that for a rich person who, who just can't find a way to part ways with their stuff, he says for that person, it's gonna be really hard for them to find the kingdom of God. Y'all, everything I've just described, what he's done and what he said, it all takes place in three chapters. <laughs> That's Mark chapter eight through 10. And as we read, as we follow along, as we hear his every word, every word is slowly, radically turning the world upside down. Turning your world upside down. Now what are you thinking? The text said they were going up the road to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking on ahead of him. They were amazed and those who followed were fearful. Simultaneously amazed and afraid. And I'm telling you, I can relate. Like when I consider who Jesus is and what he's done, I am both amazed and afraid. Like even standing here now on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb, it's both awesome and terrifying. 
It's awesome because he has truly made a way for us to experience the love of God now and forever, and even my sin can't stop him. That's awesome. But it's terrifying because it means that this life will never be the same. That my plans are now being replaced by his. My world turning upside down. In just a couple weeks, 23 years, anniversary, right? Did I get that right? Yes. (laughs) 23 years ago, did we think this is where we'd be? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Life will never be the same. Turning our world upside down. Now see yourself not just as one of a crowd of many, um, but as one of his own. As someone that Jesus calls his disciple. Now he takes you and the others aside and he tells you that he's gonna be handed over to the chief priests, to that religious establishment he's been condemning. That they're now gonna condemn him to death. They're gonna turn him over to the Gentiles. Everybody gets to be involved in this. (laughs) He says they're gonna mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and he will rise again after three days. What are you thinking? Like here and now on the other side of the cross, we know that he wasn't being poetic. He wasn't speaking in metaphor. He meant every word literally. But imagine hearing that for the first time before seeing him on the cross, before standing at the entrance of the empty tomb. What would you be thinking? Like, would you have understood? Could you have understood? Do you have trouble understanding even today? You see, I think what's interesting is that on either side of the cross, all of Jesus' disciples have something in common. There's a question that I think all disciples ask regardless of when they are following Jesus, and it's the question, why? And I'm telling you all, this is the same question that the world around us asks. Why? Why did he have to suffer and die? And we're gonna spend time on this week after week over the next few weeks. It's really important that we wrestle with this question that we understand why Jesus suffered and died. And listen, it's really important that we can articulate it, that we not only understand it, but that we can speak it to a world because honestly, the world around us, they see this as nothing more than another angry God who just wants someone to suffer, who just wants someone to suffer so that he can be appeased. You'll hear from the world, the story we celebrate is nothing more than divine child abuse. That is not what it is. Do you understand what it is and can you explain it? So this is a really important conversation we're gonna have. Jesus' disciples didn't understand that the way to glory goes through suffering. Do we and can we explain it? So for this week, I just wanna say one thing about this. That there is no real forgiveness without sacrifice. That's where we're gonna start. And if you've ever been wronged, you know this is true. Like if you've ever been really wronged, you can't just say you're forgiven and go on about your business. You can't just say the words you're forgiven and then think that everything is magically gonna be okay. Right, like when somebody offends us, does a wrong against us, like it sticks. It eats away at us unless something is done to fix what's been broken. Tim Keller says it like this in uh, the book, Jesus the King, the one that I've told you about uh, quite often. He says this, and I think this is really profound and kind of hard to comprehend at first, but 
He says that forgiveness is a greater miracle than creation. Because he says that creation could be just spoken into existence. Real forgiveness can't. Because forgiveness isn't merely spoken. It only comes once a price has been paid. Now listen, think about this on the most superficial level. Okay, um, somebody runs into your car on the way home today from church. And I say superficial because in my hypothetical today, nobody gets hurt, okay? All right. On your way home today, somebody runs into your car and does real damage to your car. What happens? Well, I can tell you what doesn't happen. You don't get out of the car and tell the person who caused the accident, oh, don't worry about it, I forgive you, and then just go on about your day. (laughs) Right? No, and you shouldn't, because that's not how it works. Now listen, Jesus, of course, wants you to control your tongue. (laughs) Like, speak both truth and love. Don't harbor anger or ill will toward the person, especially if it was an accident, right? But what happens? You exchange insurance information. (laughs) Because the reality is your car's busted up and now you have no way to get home. Like for things to be made right, the car has to be fixed. If you're gonna resume living the life you lived prior to the accident, a price has to be paid. And a price has to be paid so that both the offender and the offended can be restored to the life they lived prior to the accident. That takes more than words. It takes action because forgiveness doesn't say don't worry about it. Forgiveness takes what's wrong and makes it right. That's why there is no real forgiveness without sacrifice. Okay, now, you go to exchange information very politely, right? Very kind. You go to exchange information, but you find out they don't have insurance. Or like, what if the person who caused the accident is a college kid, just working to make their way through school, can only afford liability insurance? Like, whatever the details. The point is, whoever caused the accident, they just can't pay the price. Like, they literally can't do it. Okay, what then? No one is restored. The cars are still a wreck. A price has to be paid if the wrong is to be made right. Here's the question. Who's going to pay the price? And y'all, this is the turn in the story. Like this is the scandalous surprise in the Christian narrative that causes us to be both amazed and afraid. It's a shocking twist that turns the world upside down because it's the offended who ends up footing the bill. The offended is the one who foots the bill for both, restoring both. Because the gospel is the story of God, the offended party, paying the price I owe in order to make things right. That's the gospel. He set up reality so that we would be blessed, make more of ourselves, have good work to do, live in relationship with him and with each other. And we ran right into that beautiful sports car and we caused a wreck that we just can't afford to fix. Reality broke but God was determined to make it right. The price had to be paid, and it was. Now listen, there's no insurance that could cover the cost of my offense. Like in my selfishness, I made myself an enemy of God, and it was no accident. (laughs) When our kids were little, they would do something wrong, 
and one of them in particular would say, oh, it was an accident. And we're like, no, that was a purpose. (laughs) We learned the difference between an accident and a purpose really quick. I made myself an enemy of God and it was no accident. I broke the good world he created for me to enjoy, the abundant world he placed me in so that I could flourish. I broke it and I can't afford to pay the price to make things right. There's nothing I can do to fix this mess. And that cross reminds me that he paid the price. That he didn't just say, don't worry about it, let's try again. How's that gonna work? (laughs) He paid the price and it was costly. He covered it at great expense. Now the mess has been fixed. Not so that I can just go on living in the mess that I made for myself, but so that now I can find new life. That I can start to find that new life today until I find it in its fullness forever. He paid the price I couldn't pay so that I would be restored to life with God I was created to live. The offended paid the price. This is the scandal of that cross. It's not fair. It actually doesn't make any sense from our perspective. You can only see it when you're on this side of the cross and the empty tomb and you can only see it through the gift of faith. That's why the disciples didn't understand what was going on. Like they traveled with him on that road to Jerusalem but they didn't understand why there had to be a cross at the end of the road. They didn't understand why the road to glory goes through suffering. I want to read the rest of this chapter and then just offer a really quick thought about how we can apply all this uh, to our lives today in just some really simple ways. Um, But as I read this, I want to warn you, like, be careful. Uh, Don't judge these disciples too harshly, okay? Remember, like, what would you think if you heard him say this before you saw him on the cross? Like, what would you do if you were them? Um, But you do need to know that what I'm about to read comes immediately after he tells them that he's going to suffer and die, okay? So that's important. Uh, It says this, this is Mark 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's okay, you can judge a little. A little little after, it's okay. Not thy will be done, right? Do Do for us whatever we want. Jesus is amazing. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, permit one of us to sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I experience? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I experience. But to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to give. It's for those for whom it has been prepared. I mean, what do you think those two guys thought when they saw not only Jesus on the cross, but somebody on his right and on his left? So it goes on, it says, now when the other 10 heard this, they became angry with James and John. Jesus called them and said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions use their authority over them but it is not this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now you need to know that's the third time Jesus has told them about his death, right? The first time Peter rebukes him. The second time in chapter nine, it says that as they continued to walk, all the disciples talked amongst themselves about which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus asked them what they were talking about. And I think in my mental image, when I read the verse, it's something like this. They didn't say a word, right? They didn't want to admit it. James and John, uh, they, were, they were brave. <laughs> they said what everybody else was thinking. We want to be the best in your glory, to your right and left. They ask for seat of honor and status and authority as a response to Jesus saying that he's going to suffer and die. But listen, the Mediterranean world in the first century, it was a culture of honor. In that culture, status and wealth and authority and a power, they were virtues to pursue. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Like the cultural assumption is that status and power and authority and wealth are to be desired because if we have those things, we are seen as important in the eyes of men and women which makes us feel important in our own eyes. These disciples have been walking with Jesus in his footsteps for three years, covered in that dust, kicked up by his sandals, watching him turn the world upside down, but they're still thinking from their culture's perspective. They were searching for honor and status and authority. The reality is we need to give them a break because I don't think they could have imagined it any other way. Like that worldview had become so pervasive in their culture that it even shaped and perverted Israel's expectation of its savior. The the savior wasn't coming to suffer and die. The savior was coming to win the battle. He's bringing a sword. He's gonna cause suffering against Israel's enemies so that Israel could what? Regain the honor, the status, the power, and the wealth that it had at the time of King David. It's the best that they could hope for. It's the most they could imagine. Jesus' disciples were entrenched in the cultures of their, the values of their culture. And they were trying to bring the two together. Okay, he's king and he's ushering in a kingdom. Well, then we get to be vice president and chief of staff. We'll sit at the right and left. They wanted the positions of power and authority that they assumed he came to offer but they hadn't seen him on the cross yet. And they hadn't stood at the entrance of the empty tomb. I'm telling y'all, I don't think they could have imagined it any other way. It wasn't until the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit descends on them, that it all finally makes sense. Even after the resurrection, where do we find the disciples? They're hiding in an empty room. It's not until the Holy Spirit descends in Acts chapter two that the final piece of the puzzle lets them see the whole picture. And once they saw the picture and once that happened, y'all, they got to work and they turned the world upside down. What they did is the reason we are here today. What's our excuse? Like here we are 2,000 years after the cross, 2,000 years after the empty tomb. 
2,000 years after the Spirit descended on the church, giving Jesus' followers the power and the authority they needed to take the good news to the ends of the earth. That same power living in and through us. Yet here we are. Like so often spending our days chasing after the status and wealth and power and authority that this world promises. Like here I am, after 30 years of following Jesus, still wrestling with worldview. And which one's gonna guide my steps each day? Praying every morning, let me choose your kingdom over mine. At the end of the day, praying, I'm sorry for choosing my kingdom over yours. It's hard because we live in a world that always, constantly, without ceasing, is telling us to climb over whomever we have to in order to reach the top, get there by any means necessary, Seek this power and status and authority because it'll make your life better. People will admire you for it. Hey, you might get some good, you might get some good done. The problem is, is that it's so pervaded our culture that it's made its way into the church. And even disciples of Jesus are tempted to think that if I have these things, that maybe even God will love me more. Now, Jesus has given us a task to continue the work of turning the world upside down but not by stepping on and ruling over people, but by serving underneath them. He says that we will win over hearts and minds not by exercising authority over, but by serving under. So what will we do? We're gonna spend the next few weeks talking about some of the the deeper implications of all of this. Um, But for today, I just wanna talk about a couple small, like very small practical ways that I think this way of thinking can play out even just here in our church family. Like little acts of service that we can do within the body that I think would turn this church upside down, and I mean that for the good. (laughs) Like one thing I love about this church, and I've been a part of it for over 20 years, is that even when I came 20 years ago to start the contemporary service, y'all compared to many other churches, we really didn't fight about worship disagreeing and fighting are two different things. We never fought about worship, and I'm grateful for that. But I think we can do better than just not fighting. Like earlier this morning, I asked the contemporary service. They don't connect with the robes, right? They want the drums and guitars, I get it. But I asked them, I was like, could you stay after your service to welcome those who are coming in for the service after you? Could you get to know them by name? Could you sit with them in a traditional service from time to time and learn to see the beauty and the liturgy and the practices that go back generation, even if it's not your preferred style of worship? I asked them, I said, what will you do? And like, I want y'all to know that right now there are people from the contemporary service in the room. Like some are already doing it. For those of you here at the traditional service, you don't wanna worship in blue jeans with a band. Like, I get it. (laughs) Could you show up early? And could you either greet people before or say something to them after their service with a smile? Like, even if they're worshiping in a way that just doesn't make sense to you. Like, could you come to their service every once in a while so that you would get to know them? so that maybe you could just better understand worship from their perspective, even if you don't like it. And I want you to know, 
when I was talking to the 930 service, there were people from the traditional service there today who were already doing that. The cross of Christ is front and center in both these services. The same gospel is proclaimed. What will you do? If you're older and maybe you just don't understand how to talk to students or how to talk to kids, like maybe, maybe you just don't like understand them at all, much less how to talk to them, it's fair enough. Young people are weird. <laughs> what will you do? Like, will you come on a Wednesday night and serve them? If you don't know what else to do, would you just start by serving them? Could you bring them a meal? Could you volunteer to help? Like, will you serve them? And then see if Jesus might open a door so that you can get to know them and understand them and build relationships. And for those who are younger, same thing. If you don't know how to connect with an older person here at the church, I get it. Old people are weird. <laughs> now, come on. Y'all laughed harder at the first one. <laughs> it's trying to be equal opportunity. But if you don't know what to do, will you just start by serving them? Like, can you give them a ride to the doctor? Visit them in the hospital? Pick up a curbside order at HEB. Like take time from your busy schedule to visit them in their homes. Just sit and listen. Listen to these amazing life experiences. Hear stories about a world that's so much different from the one that we live in today. What will we do? Well, I'm convinced that if we practice the servant, this servant posture with one another, if we start there, if we adopt a servant posture with one another, like I'm convinced that our posture at home, in their neighborhood, at school and at work, that it'll improve. And I'm convinced that that posture will improve our relationship as a church with the world around us. That it'll make us effective witnesses for his kingdom, not just people talking about an alternate version of our own. This is how Jesus wants to use us. What is the posture that a Christian needs to take if we're gonna turn the world upside down? I'm telling you it's this. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this is hard because your gospel is pretty different from the world around us. It doesn't make sense. We do not naturally respond to the world the way that you do, so we need your help. Teach us and guide us. Give us the strength and the courage so that we can not only follow you on your way to the cross, but that we can model the life you lived in the presence of a world that just desperately needs you. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. As we